Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, uh, my name is Aaron Weinacht, and I am here with the uh, Russian and Eurasian Studies section of the New Books Network. And our guest here today is Vanessa Rampton, who has written a, a book recently entitled Liberal Ideas in Tsarist Russia. And so that book is covering uh, from the late uh, 17, mid and late 1700s, really, until uh, the era of the Russian Revolution in the early 20th century. So thank you for being with us here today today, Vanessa? My pleasure. First off, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, kind of for some background, like how did you get interested in this topic? What was the, what were the things that led you to write a book on this particular uh, subject matter? Mm, yeah, sure. Well, I've, um, I'm interested in the history of ideas and in intellectual history. And uh, yeah, I kind of naturally gravitated towards Russia. I was learning Russian language at university, spent some time in Moscow. And Russia is a great topic for anyone interested in how ideas are kind of lived lived through in practice. Um, and of course, more famous because of its um, Marxist and traditions of thought. But um, I was drawn to the Russian, yeah, Russian liberals, because they were they were relatively understudied on the one hand, and um, also I'd been looking at the history of normative political ideas more broadly, so freedom, um, progress, and that yeah, thinking about you know what it was that was kind of specific to the Russian context. Um, that that didn't yeah that that allowed these ideas to take on a different coloring from how they from how they had in other countries and in other parts of the world um i guess yeah led me to to embark on this bigger research project and uh i mean there was one other kind of more more personal reason it's that i was working for yeah nine years from 2005 um till 2014 as a translator for the the website Kremlin.ru. Uh, it's been in the news recently because it was it was hacked. But I was I was translating this kind of political material, basically the um, yeah outputs from the president of the Russian Federation, and always thinking, you know, how kind of about contemporary contemporary Russia's um, like non-attachment to, to liberalism and and 
kind of thinking back to the debates of the 1990s and the end of the Soviet Union, well, you know, why why did Russia not become a liberal democratic country? And yeah, so that kind of practical job experience together with my more academic background led me to, yeah, to, to examine the question historically. Uh, <laughs> that um, that kind of leads us to a, a, a second kind of uh, framing question, I think, which is uh, we probably better define from the beginning what this liberalism thing is that we're talking about. Uh, and that's, that's not that easy to do. I mean, you spent some time talking about that in your book. Uh, could you maybe, you know, riff for a few minutes on, you know, the position or the cluster of positions that you take to kind of make up some kind of generic liberalism? Mm-hmm. Sure. So one, one of the first things to say um, about Russian liberalism is it's, it can be kind of hard to find. I guess if you, if you take ideas that we might traditionally associate with liberalism, something like um, laissez-faire economics, um, a rule of law state or a commitment to the rule of law state, and, and you go through Russian history, like looking for, um, yeah, thinkers who've espoused those ideas, you can, it can be, they can be very hard to find. So what I was trying to do um, in this book is to show, to not so much focus on specific, I don't know, the liberal attachment to something like human dignity or to a particular vision of progress, but to say, if we think of liberalism as um, a political doctrine that's aware of certain internal tensions within it, then we can talk about a wider range of thinkers than um, might seem at first glance. So, so the tension that I was particularly interested in is the one between uh, a commitment to individual freedom, um, kind of negative liberty, and then a commitment to to a more um, social project and, and justice and, and a, more, a more positive version of liberty. And I think that that framework for approaching liberalism is, um, I think it's justified by by contemporary liberal theory. But it, it hasn't been used so much when examining um, liberal or, or when examining countries that don't have a really um, that don't really have a liberal tradition of their own. So that's that's how I how I frame the subject and how I how I got into the Russian material. Yeah, I just thought it might be wise to think about some definitional matters before uh, proceeding there. So that uh, that said, then uh, what I mean, what, what kind of strains of liberalism do you in fact see emerging in uh, in imperial Russia? Say, you know, kind of in the earlier parts of your book there. Mm-hmm. So uh, the book kind of starts with a with a first chapter that's called something like proto-liberalism. And these are thinkers that um, are are writing roughly between the Russian Enlightenment, so kind of the reign of Catherine uh, Catherine the Great, to yeah, mid-19, mid mid-end 19th century. And 
there, those are thinkers who did not self-identify as liberals. So they did not use the term um, necessarily. Well, actually, the term liberal was was often used in a derogatory way in the in the Russian context. Um, but what they did do was was elaborate elements, I guess, of a of a of a Russian liberal theory that that went on um, to kind of inform how subsequent Russian liberals, so late 19th century, early 20th, um, and the people who are, are, are kind of the, um, the main characters in my book, um, yeah, they drew on that preceding on that preceding century of reflections about yeah human dignity or or natural natural rights as a protection from Russian autocracy, um, also the idea that the the, the peasant commune could pro- could provide some kind of um, I don't know democratic uh, structure on which um, Russian a new Russian political system could build. So that's that's all found in 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 the early part of the book. And then I I concentrate um, on two main strands of Russian liberalism. So one is yeah, I call it neo idealist liberalism. So very inspired by by idealism, um, by Kantian philosophy, by, by German idealism. And then another strand, which is uh, usually associated with more empiricist and positivist thought. So they're the intellectual heroes of these empiricist, positivist liberals were more uh, people like John Stuart Mill, Auguste Comte. And those two strands of thought were, I mean, the people who who developed them, they often came to similar institutional um, conclusions or or similar, they had, you know, they cooperated together within the liberal movement when it became active at the beginning of the 20th century, but they had very different philosophies and, and kind of very different epistemologies, understandings of what what freedom meant, and, and what were the ramifications of, thereof. Could you uh, maybe give a like who are a couple of thinkers who would be good specific examples of of both sides? Maybe kind of flesh out two particular characters. For sure. So the the one um, man who's probably the most famous Russian liberal, his name is Pavel uh, Milyukov. And he kind of embodies the empiricist positivist strand. So basically what it involved was a belief that a belief that Russia was developing. It, it, it was kind of proceeding, its development was proceeding in some way in accordance with laws of history. I don't want to make it too deterministic because he was interested in yeah, empirical material as well, and and he he was not he was not overly dogmatic, but there was this real sense of civilizational advance in quotes something like that 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 was driving Russian liberals and Russian liberalism forward, and and this was quite an optimistic um, strand, and many political actors subscribed to this. Yeah, it's really a positivistic. Um, worldview, which 
yeah, which held that that freedom was something that that came when society became really complex, and that's when uh, you know liberal democracy was necessary. And and they saw this as almost technical. Miryukov says there is nothing more national about a constitution than there is about electricity or printing press. You know, he saw it as as just something that was spreading around the globe. And then the other strand of, uh, of liberalism is, is maybe not so associated with one person, but a, a group of, of philosophers mainly. Uh, they were associated with an organization called the Moscow Psychological Society. Um, Pavel Novgorodsev is, is a very well-known kind of Russian Kantian philosopher. Um, Bogdan Kistiakovsky is another one. And they... They drew on Kantian thought to to kind of ground their visions of freedom. So basically, for for someone like Novgorodsev, the existence of of moral freedom and of dignity were justifications of a rule of law state and and a liberal a kind of a liberal political order and. They, these new idealists, they were also very, um, they were much more attuned to, um, yeah, the, the kind of the philosophical, um, the philosophical underpinnings of their theory. Like they really wrote these, these philosophical tracts justifying their own variant of Russian liberalism. And I guess the, the positivist thinkers were more, they're a little bit more on the actor side, and 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 their the the academic works they published were more almost in the realm of comparative history, trying to show how how Russia, um, yeah, Russia's development was proceeding in relation to these these other countries. You know your your description of um, of uh, Milyukov there uh, reminds me a lot actually of. Uh, a description of say somebody like Alexander Herzen. Um, so I guess, I guess I'm wondering, you know, Herzen of course is usually grouped with the socialists. Um, but, uh, I don't know. Is there a, uh, is there a, a useful comparison to be made there? Um, yeah. So, so definitely Midyukov, uh, admired Herzen a lot and, and, and in general, in terms of, the intellectual lineage, and as you just said, Herzen was was kind of claimed by the more radical democratic traditions as a precursor, but he was also claimed by people like Milikov as as a precursor for for Russian um, liberalism. And Milikov, for for many years, particularly early on, before 1905, he he became very influential in the, in the liberation movement, which went on to become the liberal movement, that he had this policy which he called no enemies on the left. So it basically meant he would cooperate with, with any kind of socialist, revolutionary <laughs> thinker. You know, he, he really saw them as working towards a very similar goal. It didn't matter that um, many Russian social democrats were themselves not very eager to cooperate with the Russian liberals, but he he saw himself as as on this 
um, yeah, as, as having a, as being able to, to bring a very socialistic liberalism to Russia. At one point he said, um, and this was, I believe, addressed at a, an American audience, he said, you know, our, our liberal um, party is to the left of any other European groups analogous to us. So he really kind of claimed that, that radical heritage too for Russian liberalism. His views changed as he, um, yeah, after 1905 and, and as, he, as he got older. Um, but certainly they, yeah, in that early period, there was a lot of, a lot of blurring between these different um, strands of uh, strands of thinking. You know, something that's really stood out to me over the years um, is just uh, this is with regard to you bringing up uh, the, the the peasant commune earlier. Uh, something that's something that's always stood out is really just how deeply a lot of the uh, the radicals misunderstood how the peasant commune actually worked, I and mean, they basically they read Hoxthausen instead of looking out their back doors and. Uh, uh, I guess I was wondering, since since you brought that subject up, I mean, do you, do you get the sense that anybody on the more kind of liberal end of the political spectrum, did anybody there actually understand how the Russian peasant commune worked better than the more radical uh, thinkers did, or or do you think they were just as in the dark about that as everyone else seems to have been? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So the person who comes to mind who I think did the most um, kind of sustained academic work on the peasant commune is someone called Maxim Kovalevsky, who was, um, yeah, who approached it as a, he was a sociologist by training and, 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 and yeah, was interested in, in how these, like how, how, how it worked, <laughs> whether it could um, be scaled up, how other communal structures worked. He, he had Switzerland as an example. He went I think, to Mexico and to Peru looking for these kind of communal structures and then linked them back um, to the Russian peasant commune, highlighting their differences and similarities. So, so I guess he's one person who comes to mind as someone who, who yeah, was less... Um, Kind of using it as as a as a symbol and and more engaging with it in in its details. Um, yeah, there was also I mean as you as you know like this, some Slavophile thinkers also were really idealizing um, you know these aspects of peasant life, and this this was mocked by the liberals who who saw themselves as as kind of more, more pragmatic, I guess, not wanting to go back in time. Um, but yeah, wanting, wanting to, to use, to use the past in, in, in a modernizing way, you know, whether they were, whether they were successful or not is, is another story. One thing about Kovalevsky, who I just mentioned, I mean, he, he was on the positive side of things. So he really understood, um, Russian liberalism as as kind of a, a step, in a way, a necessary step of its historical development. But he was also aware of the fact that you know, there was much that was good and worth holding on to uh, 
in the peasant commune. So he he was he had this kind of paradox in that he had to try to reconcile you know this desire to move forward and then this desire to hang on hang on to the old. So it sounds to me like then there really isn't Russian liberalism is varied enough that you don't really see one kind of central position on the on the peasant commune that be accurate. I think that's I think that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I just, you know, because that, I mean, even more so than the reality of the peasant commune, because the idea of the peasant commune played such an important role in, you know, people thinking about non-establishment politics in the 19th century seemed worthwhile to unpack that a little bit. Uh, I was wondering, uh, broadening the context out here uh, a little bit, um, so you you kind of alluded to this at the beginning that you know liberalism in say Western Europe or you know liberalism in Russia. I mean those things arise in two pretty radically different contexts. So I thought maybe it might be useful to uh, to see like how do those different contexts result in different ideas about the same word. You know so like. Uh, Say the concept of rights, like what, what is uh, when Russian liberals talk about the idea of natural rights, like how does how does their meaning similar and different to when say somebody like John Stuart Mill talks about rights, and how does the background kind of uh, context play into those similarities and differences? Mm. Okay, well that's that's a great question. Maybe I, I would just start by answering to to first of all say something about. Uh, terminology and and you made me think of it with the word rights like what I was saying before about liberalism being a derogatory term in in Russia I mean this is something that's found in in Russian literature in um, Turgenev's novels in Dostoevsky so I think it's uh, Yevgeny Batsarov so the character Turgenev's character who says yeah a liberal is uh, a useless person attached to um, nonsensical words like like rights and progress and principles. So, so really, you know, making basically saying that liberals are are hypocrites. <laughs> they're they're intellectuals who are who are detached um, from from Russian reality. You remember the uh, the beginning of uh, Dostoevsky's novel uh, uh, Devils, where he's making fun of Stepan Trofimovich uh, for exactly the same kinds of things. Exactly. Man, that section is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, this this is how you know, this was why it was very at the at the terminology the level of terminology it it was very um liberalism was tainted it was not it was not something worth aspiring to be a liberal i mean this changed slowly over time but but these but why do you think that is i i know i asked a, i asked a much bigger question a minute ago but before we get that far yeah why why do you think that is like how did the how did the term liberal in a Russian context come to have such a negative connotation for so many people who otherwise disagreed about all kinds of things? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I guess it, it goes back to that idea of hypocrisy, of kind of, having you know talking about something like like progress when actually you only want your own personal gain and if you if you think back to those characters in 
in Dostoevsky who are who are criticized for being liberals. Like often they're they're very well off, they're landowners, they're you know their life is very comfortable, and so when they talk about about progress and and the need for more freedom, it's it's seen as as first of all something foreign and imported, and second of all something that um, it, it seems like a halfway measure, I guess, as opposed to the more you know, as opposed to a more kind of radical stance that that one could take more on the side of social justice. Um, yeah, there was only one Russian. Um, kind of well-known Russian thinker who liked to apply that label to himself. That was um, Boris Chicherin. He was also kind of late 19th century. Um, but, but yeah, the uh, you know, and even as you kind of go through Russian intellectual history looking for for proto-liberals, it remains a problem <laughs> that they they all reject this this term. Um, that it changes, I think, at towards the end of the century. So the liberation movement, so liberation being asvobozhdenye, um, is simultaneously at times referred to as the liberal movement. And I think it happens with an eye to what's happening in other countries and, and this sense of the need to translate you know, developments in Russia to a, a more international audience and also to claim a, to claim a place, uh, kind of a historical place for Russia in, yeah, in the liberal development, <laughs> in the laws of history. Um, yeah, so, so that's kind of a... Yeah, just a, a little bit of reflection on, on why why that negativity was. Um, but yeah, there's there probably perhaps there are other reasons as well. Yeah. I wonder your response there makes me then wonder if um, if it couldn't be because Russian thinkers perceive that Russia's particular kinds of problems are comparatively so much more severe elsewhere that some that than they are elsewhere that somehow liberalism just isn't quite up to the up to snuff you know that uh, uh, maybe it works for other people but it won't address our problems i i, I wonder if that might yeah. not play a, a role here as well yeah and that kind of comes back to the to the big question you asked me earlier in term, in terms of the you know what was it about um Western European liberalism that was that was seen as applicable or, or not applicable in Russia. I think that yeah, Russians they I think they were very aware that there was no no kind of ready-made liberal solution to Russia's problems at the time. There, there was no there was no blueprint uh, or recipe for you know how to how to pass from an autocratic state to a kind of liberal slash democratic one. It just didn't exist. And, and they, they knew that. And so looking at Western liberal theory, they, they felt justified in being very eclectic in um, the elements they, they took and, and how they, yeah. And how, uh, and kind of, 
shaping shaping theory to to apply it to, to Russian reality. And in some in some senses, I think you know this is they were onto something. You know, liberalism is it is eclectic. It's hard to say what are the you know why uh, thinkers like um, John Locke, John Stuart Mill, um, Thomas Hill Green. You know, these are kind of liberal thinkers, but but what what is it that groups them together? I mean, it's liberalism is it is hard to define. You can you can read that in any encyclopedia article devoted to the to the concept of liberalism, um, and so they they saw that and they saw they took elements of it um, that they felt were applicable. So so you mentioned earlier the question of of natural rights. I mean, these were this idea of of the you know the, a human um, the human person as having as benefiting from from certain um, kind of natural inalienable rights was was for them an important element in um, uh, yeah in their reformist philosophies and and kind of their opposition to autocracy and and sometimes these the elements they chose were were designed in the context of, of censorship and, and at a time where it was it was very hard to to articulate like a political platform that, that directly challenged the autocracy they they honed in on specific elements and to to say okay this you know, humans, human beings deserve protection from a state, and, and of course, this, it is a political statement. But it was a way by by developing what that meant then philosophically, um, and and kind of blending blending, uh, yeah, Western theories with with Russian Russian thinkers. Um, yeah, they were they were able to for a long time. Yeah, kind of keep their work a little bit in the realm of the academic, and and develop a develop a kind of a philosophical philosophical underpinnings for what after 1905 became more about practice, um, because that's the time when when Russian um, yeah Russian liberals were really more involved in in politics, and and the men that I've been speaking about so far like. Pavel Milikov or Novgorodsev, they had been academics previously, or some some of the people I discussed in the book. One was a lawyer. You know, they they at that time stopped their academic work and and really became more involved in practical politics. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, maybe since you, you bring that up, maybe we ought to kind of move forward in, in time here then and look at what happens in and around uh, 1905. I mean, in, in your view, I mean, what, what things do people, the large numbers of people find appealing uh, in liberalism? What, what kinds of things account for its, you know, failure to become more appealing than the alternatives? Yeah, well, uh, so just just to put it in context, um, so 1905, uh, the Tsar had, had kind of um, given a concession and allowed um, an elected legislature in the, in the form of the Duma to take place. In, uh, so that was the October Manifesto of 1905, and then the Duma convened in, in 1906. And there the liberals had been, um, I don't know if they'd exactly been waiting for something like that, but certainly they were at the time very well organized in terms of, of conveying their message, encouraging people uh, to vote. So this is in the in the very first Duma of the Russian Federation, liberals were were well represented. Uh, they so that's I guess the time of their that's their their heyday as it was the time of their their greatest appeal, because when the Duma went on to be resolved, it only lasted several months. It was it was um, dissolved by the Tsar in June, I believe. Then the yeah the the. <laughs> Russian liberals tried to to call for civil disobedience um, in the light of what they saw as this illegal action of the Tsar. And then they realized, you know, they didn't have popular support. No one was really interested in their calls for, for disobedience. So they and, and then they had to face up to the fact that that, that initial kind of euphoria or, or at least optimism hadn't yeah, it didn't. It, it didn't really continue, uh, and so, so why why is that? I mean, one thing they really struggled with was that liberals tried to position themselves as not um, kind of class specific. They they called themselves like nad klasove, like above class, and and to try to appeal to all different classes. And this was, you know, these were. These were intellectuals. I mean, they were they were actually from a very um, small segment of Russian society, and they had similar backgrounds. They kind of came often from from professions of doctors, lawyers, um, but it they they struggled to to you know seem credible to to larger segments of the population. One other thing, maybe particularity about Russia was that there was not at the time um, a very strong kind of 
urban bourgeoisie who, yeah, might have supported liberalism <laughs> had it existed, you know, as we've seen it, um, as we've seen in other countries. But, but yeah, that 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 condition did not really exist. So, so yeah, they were they were always kind of well organized, politically extremely articulate. Um, they developed a, a sophisticated kind of philosophical apparatus for defending their ideas, but but struggled to to ever get something like broad popular support. Do uh, uh, as you were as you were talking there, I was thinking about um, Richard Wortman's argument, which if I um, you will probably be able to correct me if I misremember this, but. Um, you know, he makes that argument that basically Russia has never had a concept of the rule of law. Um, you know, is that so? So are the are the liberals in the early twentieth century? Um, are they in that sense too radical in this in the sense that they're they're speaking a language which just isn't. Uh, um, they're speaking in signifiers without any signifieds, uh, if I could put it that way. Is that is that part of the problem here? Yeah. So that's a really good point. You know, one one thing that happened um, was that you know the Liberal Party when it when it was created, it first called itself the Constitutional Democratic Party. Um, then it changed its name to the Party of People's Freedom. I mean, it, and that's that was for exactly the reason you just mentioned that the, you know, constitutional democratic was not really a, a signifier at that time, or certainly didn't spark a lot, a lot of, yeah, it didn't spark the kind of uh, what they'd, what they'd hoped. And, and the rule of law, I, I think, I think that's right. I think the rule of law as well. Um, there was no consolidated position. Or just to say there were, there were a couple of, of um, there were various Russian liberal positions as to the rule of law. Um, a man called Kistyakovsky, he wrote a, a well-known essay called "In Defense, In Defense of Law." It's contained in the Landmarks volume, which was published in 1909, and kind of a looking back on 1905 and then thinking of of what could have gone differently. But he he was one person who who took this question quite seriously and and saw law itself as having a kind of a stabilizing factor and also a very educational factor as able to you know once once the rule of law existed, then he thought things could move quite quickly or they would it would help individual persons to to develop their civic conscience but um but the problem was that that the rule of law did not as he as he would have liked it did not did not exist another problem was that you know to to defend the rule of law in an autocracy that was kind of still an autocracy even after the october manifesto or at least wasn't the the, the Russian um, government wasn't really acting like a rule of law state. It kind didn't, of a de facto it, versus de jure scenario. Mm, it, yeah, it, it, 
kind of was paradoxical. You know, you're defending the rule of law. You're not in a rule of law state. So that means you have to break the law. Um, and, and for that reason, I mean, many, many of these thinkers were on the side of revolutionaries or at least thought that, that, um, political violence and terror were kind of morally justified in the Russian circumstances at the time. So these are just some of the, the reasons that these discussions of the value of law look so different, um, from from how they might have looked in in England, for example, or, or in France. You might. Uh, it occurs to me that this is this is a good time maybe to bring up um, for the listeners the difference in between a couple of different Russian words for freedom. Uh, you talk about that in the book. Um, you know, it's not an accident that the people's will used the word volia, not svoboda. Uh, is that uh, Maybe you could uh, talk about that difference a little bit and how it plays into how we think about the re- relationship between freedom and violence and so on. Uh, sure. I, I mean, I think for Russian, uh, for Russian liberals, the uh, the word of choice. Um, for freedom was svoboda, and as you said, there is another word for freedom in the Russian context, which is which is volia. And I guess at that time, kind of embracing svoboda and not volia, which was associated with yeah, this a more revolutionary um, attitude. It they tried to kind of give svoboda a more yeah, maybe a, a stronger connotation of something like negative liberty and the rule of law. I think they struggled to do that, partly because the term svoboda has other connotations in, in Russia. It's also associated with kind of the big, expansive Russian spaces and and a, a kind of a, a wide Russian nature. Um but but it's it's the word like and, and through svoboda words like liberation so asvobozhdenie um, that they that they hung on to to um, yeah to talk about to talk about freedom. Yeah, yeah I thought you know this, uh, since since uh, most people listening aren't gonna. Uh, necessarily be familiar with Russian. I thought that would be an interesting uh, point. <coughs> excuse me, a point to bring out. Uh, <coughs> so, uh, uh, could you talk a bit? You brought up the landmarks essays here a second ago. Uh, could you talk a bit more about uh, if if we look at that collection of essays as kind of a post mortem on what happened in in nineteen oh five? Like, what are the what are the range of opinions in there? Where where is liberalism at as of the nineteen oh nine when those those essays were published? Mm. So that was a real. Um kind of snapshot of how much liberalism had changed in four years between 1905 and, and 1909 when, uh, when Landmarks was published. So many of the people who contributed to that edited volume 
um, were themselves uh, had been active in in the liberal movement, had themselves been, um, yeah, at times elected deputies or, or, or really kind of political actors, and what in putting together this volume, what they what they sought to do was to kind of question the strategies and and the the aftermath of 1905. So it's quite a, it's, it tends to be, um, yeah, it's a very, it's, it's quite somber, I guess. I mean, it's, it's, there are some recrimination, the, the essays are, you know, discuss different, different aspects. One is devoted to, um, the rule of law. They, they kind of come at, come at political, realities from from different angles um but their point is that the intelligentsia and by intelligentsia they basically mean the positivist liberals associated with pavel milikov and and others but but he was he was um yeah i mean a main opponent of theirs basically they said that they were misguided in thinking of history as developing in the direction of freedom so they 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 sought at that time to to kind of question the wisdom of of a revolution to achieve political change they place a lot more emphasis on internal um internal reflection uh within persons as a way of of kind of self-education to and, and advocated that as a way of moving society forward, and and landmarks triggered its own reaction within liberal circles. I mean, there were a number of kind of anti-landmarks books that were then published, again often with essays from multiple contributors, and and they really their argument was to say, well, you know, landmarks authors are are totally reactionary. They're calling for um, you know, they want us to think about morals when actually we should be thinking about politics and constitutions. Um, and, and they, the, the kind of positivist reactions to landmarks, they had a very different interpretation of 1905. I mean, they were aware of the, the kind of failure of Russia's constitutional experiment and, and things that, you know, the, the Duma had gotten much less representative uh, by that time, and then it was uh, liberals were not um, well represented. But but in any case, it was it was a more kind of um, reactionary set of deputies. So they were aware of the flaws, but they still saw um, the experience of that revolution as just kind of, in a way, a a blip or or a step a step back. But they still knew where they wanted to go. And landmarks questioned that and said, well. You know how how are we are we really sure that, that what we previously thought still holds in the light of what we know know now, after having lived through this traumatic collective experience, and liberals were on both sides of the debate, and I, I think I think what it does show is that yeah it shows again how hard it is to to say what is really a liberal p- position. I mean a lot of the thinkers I discuss they're changing their intellectual kind of assumptions on the ground you know they're reacting to events and and they had 
in this very tumultuous political environment, they had to really articulate positions kind of, yeah, in real time, as it were. And they, they went through many different stages. Um, someone I haven't mentioned until now, but whose name is uh, Peter Struve, he had a very kind of, uh, yeah, wide-ranging intellectual trajectory in that he started as a, a Marxist, kind of changed to become a neo-idealist liberal. And then around around 1909, went on to become a very nationalistic, um, yeah, chauvinistic thinker. And, and it's, so, so while he is, he fits with the story of Russian liberalism, he also shows that it's incredibly hard to find anything like a pure, a pure Russian liberal or any one liberal in quotes answer um, to any to the questions or the dilemmas that they were facing at the time. Well, uh, since you bring up nas- chauvinistic nationalism, <laughs> I, uh, I, I. Uh... Listeners are probably wondering if if uh, if we were ever going to get around to this, but uh, since uh, for all of you listening, since uh, um, Vanessa and I set this interview up about six or eight months ago, obviously a number of important things have happened uh, in the neck of the woods we're discussing, and uh, I think we can also observe with some confidence that. Uh, the kind of the kind of political culture Russia has has something to do uh, with what's going on uh, in Russia and the Ukraine as of uh, what is today March the seventeenth of twenty twenty two. So uh, I was wondering, um, without asking you to make any uh, predictions of any kind. Uh, could you uh, talk for a minute about how you see the material in your book on the history of Russian liberalism as being relevant to our, our present uh, our present moment here as far as what, what kind of political culture Russia has? Mm, yeah. Well, there are a couple of things to say. So... Um, so yeah, thank, thanks for not making me give a prediction. Um, no, I, I don't do those either. I, I, I eschew predictions. <laughs> yeah, and and you know one thing the material in the book does show is that it's it's it would be unwise to make predictions. There are a number of like very poignant quotes um, that the Russian liberals, the heroes of my book, they made around 1915, 1916, where they they kind of convey this optimism because they believed in historical laws and, and they thought, you know, Russia was on its way to becoming a liberal country. They believed this really strongly. Um, and of course, you know, 1917 is the end of the story. And these people, I think virtually all of them finished their life in immigration, but it, it just shows, it just kind of showed to me the extent to which <sighs> You know, predictions predictions are are likely um, to be wrong. I guess I would say, as a you know, as a as a historian, I think we tend to see differences um, rather than similarities between historical situations you know, as things were then and, and as they are now. Um, I mean, we have. 
you know, Russian liberals were operating in conditions of, of censorship, of um, repression. There were also some wars were were very unpopular. The the war against Japan in 1904, 95, uh, 1905 was was seen as the the Tsar's war, and then this. Um, directly influenced the revolution of 1905 and then the Russian regime's willingness um, at, at the beginning of the 20th century to, to at times use violence against its own population. I mean, these were also things that, that effectively um, made, made Russian liberals become revolutionary in some cases or, or made them condone revolutionary tactics. So those are kind of similarities and then <laughs> pretty much everything else is a difference. But yeah, maybe one point that's worth making is there, there came to be a kind of a, a boil, like a, a, there was a boiling point when people like Milukov, like Kistiakovsky, like Novgorodza felt they could not work anymore. In any case, some of them had been exiled or, or were um, in prison. But there, there came a sense when, okay, life as usual cannot go on. Um, and they had, some of them had kind of mundane, you know, professional interests that were not political at all. But there came a sense that, you know, we have to become involved in politics. This is, this is what's required of us in this situation. I can't tell if that is happening now in Russia. I think it's just too soon. We don't have enough information um, and enough time to go on. But but yeah, what the what the Russian what these thinkers showed is that they were they became political, not by choice, but because of circumstances. And you know, there 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 will be other instances in which people feel the need to to express themselves politically and to act politically even though they would not they do not think of themselves as fundamentally um, political so I suppose we could call that one kind of a matter of staying tuned couldn't we mm-hmm yeah, yeah, I think unfortunately that's where we are now. No. Yeah, well, I just uh, um, I don't know. It seems like the the question of what kind of political culture Russia has had in the past and has now is one of more than uh, uh, more than minor interest at the moment. So uh, anybody who is uh, looking at uh, why. Uh, Russian liberals have have generally been in the minority vis a vis more authoritarian uh, political uh, uh, points of view. Uh, would do well to uh, uh, read the book that we've been talking about here. So, the uh, I know I certainly I certainly benefited from doing so. I hadn't I hadn't read much on Russian liberalism since I read Volitsky in graduate school. So uh, it was nice to it was nice to have a refresher. So. Anyway, thank you for the chat, Vanessa. Uh, this has been quite uh, illuminating for me and hopefully for people listening as well. Great. My pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on.